So, so The Matrix is, is certainly one of my favorite movies. Um, just to uh, summarize a little bit about the, the plot without giving any critical plot details, spoilers away. Um, most humans are living with a false understanding of reality, right? And there was a war between humans and machines, and the result of that war was that machines won, basically, and hooked all human brains into this virtual reality called the Matrix, where, they, where we live life as we know it here in the Matrix, right? Not realizing that our actual bodies are in these pods and being harvested for energy and electricity and whatever our bodies can produce so the machines can keep going because they have no sunlight anymore. Okay, so that's what's going on in the matrix. But, but the idea about it, it most people don't realize um, that they're living in a false reality. They're just, they live what's apparent before them and they don't realize that there's actually something else happening until you take the red pill which kind of like wakes you up and shows you uh, where you're at in this harvest field of humans and you get your brain disconnected and you get flushed out and kind of reborn into the real earth, um, which in the case of the movie, real earth is actually not very great. It's kind of um, decaying and uh, in a lot of trouble. So I like the movie so much because one, it came out when I was in college and it's just like meaningful because of that. Two, because I'm a sucker for sci-fi epic stories, movies. And thirdly, because there are numerous similarities like you were saying, Charles, between the matrix, I feel like, and the realities of, of our life, of real life. When I was in seminary, my professor, Carl Laney, uh, explained God's plan for the ages this way. He said something like this, there is an eternal kingdom of God where God has always been and will always be king and ruling over all of this kingdom. Jeremiah 10.10 says, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure his indignation. So in this kingdom, God is sovereign right now. He always has been. He always will be forever. And that's reality. That's, that's the truth about what is, is real even to us now. However, as my professor explained it, there is also a false kingdom of Satan. And Satan rebelled against God, and he, Satan then becomes known as the god of this world, or the prince of the power of the air. Um, and Professor Laney says, at his fall, Satan instituted a counterfeit kingdom to parallel God's kingdom and challenge God's authority. So he creates this whole new kind of system of looking at things where he puts himself in charge and he, he claims a false kind of kingship and a, a kind of, and God actually grants him some sort of a limited rule here. 
and earth. So every, every ruler needs subjects, and so Satan starts with Adam and Eve, and he starts by deceiving them into coming under his rule, and everybody since Adam and Eve have been born into this false matrix, unaware of the eternal kingdom of God, and unaware that they aren't serving the true king, actually, but they're serving the king of this alternate reality kingdom that we're living in. And we're being deceived in that, thinking that this is it. And then there's a red pill called faith that causes us to be born again and to be awakened to the fact that everybody's been living under this deception of a different ruler. And our entrance into the kingdom of God gives us the ability to kind of understand the, the world in a way that is and live in the world in a way that's unexplainable in Satan's kingdom. Like dodging bullets and stuff, right? When you understand the matrix and you've been outside of that and you understand the very, like we were able to live in the world in a way that is unexplainable in Satan's false kingdom and it points to the existence of another kingdom, of God's kingdom. So you can see maybe some of the connections that I like to think about with watching the matrix. Um... We've discussed several different ways that we identify ourselves and how coming to Christ in, in faith, it kind of redefines all of our identities. Um, we've talked about how in Christ, our personal identities are changed or are repurposed. So I'm not just me doing things that I'm good at for the sake of myself, but I'm a member of or a body part of the body of Christ. And each of us is unique and different and important, but purposed for building up the body. We're purposed now for the common good, not just for ourselves. We talked about how in Christ, our family identity has changed. The last couple of weeks, we've talked about how we are a part of a new family in Christ. We have a new father. We have new brothers and sisters. And we, we resonate now more with this new family in many ways that we do, even the family that we grew up with. And we spend a lot of time, like our time and different things in our lives are now repurposed because of the new family that we have who are doing the will of the Father. So we spend a lot of time together. We serve and we love one another as a family. We stay devoted to each other because we're family. And tonight, uh, we're going to look at how our identity as, as a people has changed. So let me ask you guys this. How or who are your people? You had to say, these are my people. Um, who would you say those are? You can say, my, my people are, I, I resonate with. Um, whatever it may be, you might not want to say. I don't know. I, my people are libertarians. Texans. Texans, yes. <laughs> I feel it. Um, yeah. You might say your people are your family. You might say your people are your um, the the country that you're born in. If you weren't born, no matter where you're born, you might say that your people are those who are in a similar kind of place in life socioeconomically as you. Well, these I kind of feel comfortable. These are the people that are my people. Who like who you're connected with, kind of at, at a deep level, okay, so 
it could be a political party, man. I, I, my people are uh, people who think like me politically. My people are my coworkers. This is, man, we're, we're together, we're a team, these are my people. I have a number of friends now, I, I feel like it's kind of a newish thing, or at least coming around again, that people sit, try to identify as a people of just humanity. We're all, this is humanity, and we, we love each other, and we're with each other, and we can understand and love each other because, because we are humankind, the human race, and that's um, who we are as a people. I wonder who of us would answer, who are your people? You'd say, well, my people, I'm a citizen of heaven. That's who my people. I'm a citizen or a citizen of another world. Or my people are those people who are in God's kingdom, who are living under the rule of God. John 18, Pilate enters his headquarters and says to Jesus, this is when Jesus is kind of about to be led to the cross. Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? To Jesus, are the Jews your people? Are you over them? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it, say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, am I a Jew? That's, Pilate's saying, that's not my people. Your own nation, he tells Jesus, and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. So in that, Jesus is, is associating more closely with, with people in the kingdom of God, not just his, his Jewish people, which he was Jewish, right? In Colossians 1.13, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Well, his beloved son is in the kingdom, who is part of the kingdom of, not of this world. So there's like matrix kind of language here. This world of death or this world, this domain of darkness that everybody's born into and they don't know any different. We can be transferred in Christ to another domain, out of the domain of darkness and into the domain of Jesus Christ. Philippians says, our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from the Lord Jesus Christ. So, I mean, you could say we have a citizenship in this country or um, a membership in other things. But our citizenship, Paul says, is, is in heaven. Ephesians 2 says, when you were, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, like doing what, what you're kind of programmed to do or how you start out, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, were born into it, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's what everybody, the, the reality that everybody begins in, everybody's living in this darkness and this deception. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. I think of Neo, like when he comes out of the little cocoon looking thing, he just takes this big, <gasps> takes this big breath in this new world, 
and then he gets flushed out and he sees Morpheus and Morpheus says, welcome to the real world. (laughs) (laughs) By grace you have been saved and he raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So we are citizens of heaven. Us, as as God's people, we're citizens of heaven. We're members of another kingdom. And we've been rescued out of a false kingdom, which Satan has set up his rule over, and we've been red pill awakened to the true kingdom of God. Now, that's a deep foundational identity of ours. We're citizens of the kingdom of God. There's a lot that goes into that new identity. Um, Peter says, you, followers of Jesus, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light from one to another, transferred into another kingdom. Um, maybe you've memorized that verse, but I don't think that a lot of this um, The language that Peter uses there, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. It's from Isaiah 43, Exodus 19, where hundreds of years earlier, when that was originally written, it was talking about a specific people group, uh, an actual like people group that we can see and recognize here on earth, the Jewish race, the Aaronic priestly occupation, the Israelite nationality. He was talking about a specific people. There was this earthly kingdom that we can recognize just as we see other kingdoms even now to this day. And it was God's kingdom. It was very physical and before us. But Peter uses um, that same language to refer to us now as a, as a f- the further revelation of God's people, his church. And he says there's a broadened way to see God's people now. Anybody from any race, from any job, from any nation who believes in Jesus and obeys his word is, is in him, is, is a part of him now, is a part of this new people. That's what the preceding verses kind of go on to say, those who believe in Jesus and obey his word. So the, the kingdom that we're a part of, this primary kingdom that we're a part of, isn't so much material, biological, earthly, it's a spiritual kingdom, right? Right? And as far as that eternal spiritual kingdom of God is concerned, your earthly race is is no longer a primary identity. Your earthly occupation is no longer a primary identity. Your earthly nationality is no longer a primary identity. Not to say that those things don't matter. Those things are good and should be celebrated and actually should be utilized, those, those other identities that we have to display the fullness and the beauty of God's kingdom but they're secondary to who we are primarily as God's people. The variety of people, I think, racially, economically, nationally, is, should be one of the standout features of God's people, and it's meant to point to the reality of another kingdom where all are equal and all are one together, but you see that with many different people types coming together. Um, I just found this out that, that 
within a century or so after the New Testament church kind of began, <coughs> Christians in some circles began to be known as a third race. So you'd have Jews and Gentiles, and then you'd have Christians, because Christians, you could be a Christian and you could be a Jew, and you could be a Christian and you could be a Gentile or Roman or whatever other um, nationality you had, or ethnicity that you had. Um, they're sometimes called a third race, and it's a race of all of those who believe and obey Christ. They're heavenly citizens. I wonder how cool it would be if you put like a thousand people into this huge room and you said, okay, everybody get together with your people and <laughs> just kind of see what happens. And you have some different, some people organizing by uh, where they're from. You get all the Texans together and you get, you know, there's different ways that people go about. Maybe the, in, in this con, maybe the Jews would get together, maybe. Persians get together and Western Europeans and Latin Americans and African Americans and then you have the Christian people who are together who people would probably look at and say you have ethnic dysphoria because you don't know who you are because you're a bunch of different random people together um, but that is uh, very much who our identity is as, as Christians we're not confused we're citizens of a heavenly kingdom which is multi-ethnic, it's multi-class, it's multinational, it's one kingdom, it's a true kingdom where Jesus reigns as king and it's a reality that is foreign to those who don't know that that kingdom exists. So they should see that and be like, whoa, something, something there is, is not used to how I'm used to seeing life and identity organized. Well, every kingdom has a king and every king has a house or a palace and if the king is a god, then the palace is called a temple and earlier in that first peter chapter that we just read from in first peter 2 5 paul says or peter says you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house and this is kind of where i want to land tonight as kind of a, another metaphor for the church we the church the body of christ the family of god we are the house of god peter's calling us the and Paul calls us the temple of the Holy Spirit. And Paul says it very explicitly in 1 Corinthians 3. Do you not know, like he's talking to the Corinthians, like you should know this, guys, okay? Do you not know that you are God's temple? He, he's using, like it's not even a simile. He's, he's saying you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. Of course, Paul isn't saying we're physically a temple, like we should do the exercise where everybody like gets on their hands and knees and builds a pyramid or whatever, and that's, um, of course, not what he's saying. Paul is saying there is a, a temple in this alternate kingdom that many people don't even know about, and it's a temple for, for an alternate king that many people aren't aware of, and, and we are the temple who houses that king. So... What's the significance of the temple? I want to look um, back in May when we were reading through Scripture, um, through the Bible, we read, um, well, I, I was noticing this in Second Chronicles and just asking, what's the significance of the temple? As Solomon's temple was being built, what was the significance of that? And I think that's important for us to kind of understand the theological significance of the Old Testament temple because that even though that's hundreds of years before when 
Paul and Peter are talking about us being a temple, but to the people who would originally be hearing that, they have an idea and an understanding of what that temple was. So let's understand what the Old Testament temple was so that we can understand what these people in the first century are understanding the temple as. See the theological significance. So the temple in the Old Testament was simply God's house on earth. It's often referred to in the Old Testament as the house of God. Now, King Solomon says, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, God, how much less this house that I have built. So it's not that God was entirely contained in the temple, which would be impossible, but the temple, the first kind of theological significance of the temple that I want to tell you is the temple was the focal point of the presence of God. It was the focal point. The temple itself wasn't God, but inside the temple, the presence of God, if you remember as we read it, that's where the presence of God was particularly manifested. Yes, you could see him out in creation, and you could see him in other ways, and in a pillar, and in all these different ways, but, but God's presence was specifically and most noticeably in this focal point of the temple. And there was a, it was a real practical, visual, sometimes presence of God more in the temple than you could notice anywhere else. There's focus there. If you want to be near God, then you go to the temple. If you, want to, if you want to see God or sense God, then you go to Jerusalem, to the temple, because that's the focal point of the presence of God. Now that alone should mean something to us if we, the church, are the temple. Paul says we're a dwelling place, for God by the Spirit. And he says in 1 Corinthians, do you not know that you all are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you all? God dwelling in a temple, things haven't changed all that much. The difference is now that that temple is not some tangible physical temple like it was in Israel, but it's a fellowship of people. Now you think, well, it's kind of different for us because God's presence back then was focused specifically in the temple, but now there's no temple and God is just kind of a little bit of everywhere and he just kind of floats around. And that's, that's not right. Yes, you could say, just like Solomon could say, God isn't contained in his temple. It's not like he's limited to only operate within his people, but he does have a temple now and his people now are those who house his presence. They are the focal point of his presence. To use another analogy, we use, we, we're the body of Christ. We are where Christ is in earth here. So, just something to consider, Novo Church, is God's presence noticeably among us? It certainly was with Solomon's temple. Remember the fire and the earthquakes and the fear really that surrounded this holy place of temple. We can see God in other ways and other places. We can see God in creation. We can see God because we have a conscience and we can see God because of the common graces that he gives to us, this air that we can breathe and the good food that he gives us to eat and all of these different things. But there's a hot spot of his presence and the Spirit of God himself dwells in the new temple of the church. Okay?
So you can look around, you can see different kings and kingdoms, and you can see presidents and prime ministers and other heads of state, and you can see countries and nations, like they're, they're visible around us, we can see them. You can see where they live, the White House, the, the Prague Castle, wherever it is that these heads of state live. But the temple that houses the invisible God isn't a physical building, it's a spiritual house of people. And it's evident, or it's evidence to the people around us of another world, of another kingdom that actually exists that maybe they didn't know about. So the temple, us, we are the focal point of the presence of God. Well, if God's presence is supposed to be housed in the temple, then what's that temple, what must that be like? Well, if you look at the Old Testament temple again, the Old Testament temple was holy. David said, The work is great, for the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. Imagine a palace for God. I um, mentioned some of the construction of it, and you read about it. Solomon's temple was carefully constructed according to the word of God, and it took seven years to build, and it took 140-something thousand people to build. And um, David collected for Solomon 7.5 million pounds of gold, and the inside of it was lined with gold, and 75 million pounds of silver. And the nails, some of the nails were even made from gold. It's such a nice place that they, the hardware that they use is, is gold. And the height of, of the vestibule at the front was 180 feet or 20 stories tall. It's this huge entrance to this building. And Solomon says in 2 Chronicles 2.9, the house I am to build will be great and wonderful. And that word wonderful is an understatement in our language, but what it really means is not just like, oh, that's just wonderful, but it means otherworldly, like miraculous almost. Like that thing seems impossible to accomplish. It's that amazing. Because the house of God should say something about the God that it contains, which is why it was, I think, so beautifully constructed and so magnificent. But even more than that, it was holy. So the temple itself, not only is God holy, but the temple was made holy. Holy, you guys know, means to uh, be set apart or to be, to be distinct from, to be other. Beardman's Dictionary says that it's like, it's, alienness. It's, it's different than the other things, and it carries with it kind of spiritually this sense of being clean and undefiled, because it's, it's apart from. And the temple of God, Solomon's temple was built with these exact standards, and everything was precise and just right, and it was made with the purest and the finest materials available there, and it was consecrated, or it was made clean, it was rid, ridded, of however you say that, of all of the defilements and of sin and common earthly things. So you have all these, you guys know, the, all the ceremonial washings and all of the sacrifices in order to enter the temple. And when the Ark of the Covenant was first brought into the temple, it says there were so many sacrifices that were being made that you couldn't even keep count of it. And then after the sacrifices that I write it down. Oh, after the temple, after the ark was put in there, they offered a sacrifice of 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. I read somewhere that's probably, if we had to estimate, that's 500,000 gallons of blood over the course of 
seven days. Why? Because it had to be clean. It had to be made holy. It had to be made perfect. It had to stand apart. And in God's economy, that's what it takes in order for something to have its defilement removed. The temple had to be holy. That word holy in the Old Testament is, is the favorite adjective used to describe the temple. Psalm 5-7, I'll bow down toward your holy temple. Psalm 11-4, the Lord is in his holy temple. Psalm 79, they have defiled your holy temple. Psalm 138, I bow down toward your holy temple. Jonah 2-4, I shall again look upon your holy temple. Jonah 2-7, my prayer comes before you into your holy temple. Habakkuk 2-20, the Lord is in his holy temple. So God dwells in holiness because he's a holy God. He dwells in a holy temple, and the holy temple sits upon on top of the holy mountain, which sits in the holy city, which is landed in what we call the holy land of Israel, right? Holy, 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 all traced back to the one who is, is living there, and God's holiness radiates out, and the closest thing to him, his house, is holy. The temple is holy. And so, Paul says in the New Testament, in Ephesians 2, that we are growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Not very different from that Old Testament as far as what it stood for and its holiness. He says in 1 Corinthians 3.17, God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. What was the penalty if the Israelites didn't treat his temple as holy usually death or something about like that. Um, if you weren't the right person at the right time going through the right cleanings and the right sacrifices, then you die if you defile the temple. And Paul doesn't take lightly the new temple either. He says if anyone destroys or corrupts God's temple, God will destroy him. That's not Old Testament. That's, talking, that's New Testament, new temple, us. If anyone destroys or corrupts God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. It's us. So, I just ask us to consider the question, do we take seriously the holiness of this temple that we are? Next week, we're going to talk about how we can take seriously the holiness of the temple that God has called us to be. Talk specifically through some of those things. But if the Old Testament was holy or set apart, and we as New Testament believers are being the temple, we too should be showing some set apartness or alienness, right? Or showing the reality of another kingdom in this temple in us. So that just leads to another and the final little theological significance of the temple that I want to share with you guys tonight. So it's a holy temple that houses God's holy, holy presence. The glory of the temple was meant to tell the glory of God to all people. The glory of the temple was meant to tell the glory of God to all people. It's this really tall building on a really tall hill. So you can see it from all around. Maybe not neighboring countries, but this was a monstrosity in Jerusalem and it was meant to tell people, not just the Israelites something 
there's a beautiful part of Solomon's kind of prayer of dedication when the temple's erected that we read in Second Chronicles. He says, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this house, hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel and listen that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name and David says before that this house that is to be built for the Lord he says must be exceedingly magnificent of fame and glory throughout all lands that's what the temple was supposed it was supposed to shine above and beyond it's like um Mary Beth and I were in Dubai a couple of years ago. We went to the tallest building in the world, the Burj Khalifa, Khalifa, something like that. We're in the tallest building in the world, and the reason that it's the tallest building in the world is because Dubai wanted to tell you something. We have the tallest building in the world, and we have the biggest gold ring in the world, and we have the biggest mall in the world, and all the biggest things they have in the world. But the purpose for that is to say something to everybody else. There's a purpose in the temple of God in its holiness and purity and beauty and size and the way that people respected it and approached it that was meant to say something to the surrounding countries. So that's how the Old Testament temple was. I wonder what does that tell us about the importance of the church as a witness to all nations or everybody around us? This temple ought to be magnificent or seemingly impossible, right? Wonderful. It's, this temple should be an otherworldly house for an otherworldly holy God who reigns in this otherworldly kingdom. So that's why Peter says, you yourselves are being built up as a spiritual house. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people for his own possessions that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There's something else out there, and we're demonstrating that there is a, a, a God, a king at work as we house him and show him and are holy around him. Second Chronicles 2.5. I love what Solomon says. This house that I am to build, he says, will be great. For our God is greater than all gods. I'm going to make this temple so fantastic because we have the most fantastic God. Or the most amazing, the most wonderful, the most holy, the most perfect. So I'm going to make a temple that says that. So a question we should ask is, does, does this temple... First, I guess, do we even proclaim that, hey, there is, there is another king that exists you can follow? And two, does this temple among us proclaim that our God is greater than all gods? Just a final uh, thought, and that's all um, that I'll have for tonight. Oftentimes in the uh, West, or the Western world, 
the New Testament temple idea is very individualized, right? Um, probably because of 1 Corinthians 6.19, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and that, in its context, is talking about, like, your body is an individual. Yes, it's a temple of the Holy Spirit, so don't sleep with prostitutes in the context, but, yeah, that's an individualized idea. But every other time in Scripture, in the New Testament, that it's talking about us as a temple, like, not Herod's temple, not Jesus as the temple, which is, he's also a temple, but temple is is us. It's saints together. So just like all of the metaphors that we've looked at of God's people, you alone don't fulfill what you're supposed to be. You can't be one part of the body of Christ apart from the body of Christ. You're not the body of Christ then. You can't be the family of God if you are an estranged child living by yourself. You're, that's not the family of God. You can't be one stone, one brick, <clears throat> and very well be the temple of God. People are going to see a little something in that. And yes, like I say, it's true. The Spirit does indwell us individually as believers. But the temple reality, primarily in Scripture, is a plural reality, just like all of these other metaphors for who we are as God's people. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Do you not know that you, plural in the Greek, you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you all? A bunch of these put together. Ephesians 2, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Frankly, one brick alone by itself isn't strong evidence of the reality of a spiritual temple and a spiritual God, another king who lives. You don't get the magnificent sense of a temple with one brick. Or one citizen alone living as an alien in this world isn't very convincing. Maybe there's bonkers, right? Our individual stones or bricks are important, but we, and we're called to be holy and as individuals as well, but when we come together, so when we come together on Wednesdays, it's like all these stones stacked up. Okay, there's, there's the temple of God. We come together on Sunday, stack up, there's, there's the temple of God. When we say, hey, can we, can we get together and can we pray together? There, you see a little bit of the, the temple of God housing God's spirit. When we, I'm not saying we like physically have to be together, but when we're talking to each other on Slack and when we're, when we're praying for each other and on the phone and, and with each other, it's all these little, it's almost like this tabernacle gets set up real quick. There's the temple of God, there's the temple of God. And people can see in this temporal world around us that they're living under this deception that there is actually a greater reality. And they can start to see this, this building being formed among us and that there's a truer reality where Jesus is reigning as, as king. All right? Next week, um, we are going to be much more specific and maybe less theological in how do we go about being the focal point of the presence of God? How do we go about being holy as we're called to be holy? How do we go about saying, hey, look at this temple so that you can see God to people who can't see him? So, and we'll get specific with some of those things. Let's pray. Father, 
Or maybe I should uh, come to you, God, as, as our king tonight and, and recognize you as that. We are thankful that you have awakened us to um, really the, the greater reality, what is the most true, which is you sitting on your throne. Um, and we can see that the power of Satan is, is limited. So thank you, God, for the, the comfort that we have from that and the joy that we have from knowing the king, the creator of the universe who always has and always will reign. Thank you for giving us Jesus, really the king who uh, proved his, his kingship, his sovereignty by raising from the dead and offering eternal life to us. So God, we want to become the people that you want us to become we have much room to grow. This is a work that you're doing. Would you help us to understand what it looks like to be your temple? And that that would become a very uh, practical reality, more of a practical reality for us. Um, God, our desire, my desire is that the nations and our neighborhoods would see the reality of you and would see the reality of, of what you're doing and then that they would turn to you and find life and stop living under the deception that there is nothing else. And it would be our joy to see them uh, turn to you as their king. Uh, so help us to be citizens of your kingdom, obviously. And we love you, Lord. Amen. Mm -hmm.